Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can. Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot. Countrywide. So 30,000 tonnes a week, something like that. Uh, that doesn't even cover the issue on broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, welcome to Countrywide. My name is Annie Brown, broadcasting to you from our Wodonga studios near the banks of the Murray River, home to the Wiradjuri, Waveru and Dadarawa people. Hope you're well, wherever you're listening from today. Feral deer have become a national problem, with the population estimated around 2 million. And this week, the government rolled out their national action plan, which involved using containment zones and eradicating small populations. So at the moment, we've got really high populations of deer right down the eastern side of Australia into the southeast corner and also around the Midlands of Tasmania and parts of South Australia. And they've got the ability to keep marching west and north across Australia. And the the plan is really about trying to halt that and, and hold them. We'll unpack the issue of feral deer around Australia and you'll hear from a range of voices from the Invasive Species Council, recreational hunters and farmers. And no chance. That's how Australia's peak mushroom industry body has described the likelihood of poisonous wild mushrooms getting into commercially produced fungi products. This follows the suspected fatal mushroom poisoning in Victoria last week. I guess it's a concern at the back of all of our minds when the foraging season comes up because it's um, just an, un- an unknown. We've got multiple certifications that are auditors regularly in order to supply the supermarkets in Australia. And that's something that's, that's really the bigger part of our business. Also, mango season has kicked off in the top end. The Kensington Prides are being picked and packed as we speak. Also, I'll take you down to Tassie first to the igloo factory. Yep, there's a company down there that makes igloos to send to Antarctica. And also, it's whiskey week. So we'll pop into a distillery for a wee dram. From the top end to Tassie. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Now, the federal government has announced a new feral deer action plan this week. The plan says currently our control methods are inadequate. The plan involves stopping the spreading of deer interstate with containment zones, eradicating isolated populations with culling, and developing a bait. Deer numbers in Australia have risen to between 1 and 2 million. Back in the year 2000, that population number was only about 200,000. Feral deer compete with livestock by eating pasture, crops and forestry saplings and damage fences and infrastructure. And they cost farmers an estimated $91 million a year. Tasmanian deer expert Tiana Pertle was in Canberra for the announcement of the government's support of the plan and she told Michael Condon what she's hearing. Um, Minister Watt has noted that deer are becoming a, a national issue and it requires a, a national plan to deal with this problem. Uh, it's an important moment because we've had decades of delays and serious coordinated approach to stem the tide of deer. Um, but this plan is just going to remain a plan unless we have some significant funding committed as well. There's some really ambitious um, goals in the plan, containing deer to the east, preventing their spread west, eradicating small populations, and protecting some of our most precious places like our World Heritage Areas in Tasmania and Blue Mountains. Um, But these 
these um, goals are not going to be reached if we don't have any funding to back that. So there's no announcement of funding from Murray Watt today, but saying he's backing the plan, but no money as yet. Did he say when there might be some talk of money? Uh, no, we have not heard anything about what the funding situation will be for the plan. And what sort of, uh, you know, what's what's the guesstimate as to what it's going to cost to actually set up these three management zones and uh, try and limit the spread and take the action that you want to take? Um, that is a great question, and I don't think we have those estimates. Managing deer is, of course, expensive. It takes investment, but these investing now will save us in millions and millions of dollars in the future because the longer you wait to manage deer populations, the larger those populations grow, the more entrenched they become, and the more money it costs to deal with them then to the point where in some places in, in New South Wales, uh, it's just too late. We can't remove deer. We're just going to have to try and manage their negative impact the best we can. That's Tasmanian deer expert Tiana Pirtle. Now, reactions towards the plan have been mixed. Hunters want more opportunity, and farmers have already been managing deer on their own for decades. Peter Jacobs is the conservation officer for the Invasive Species Council, and he lives in the northeast of Victoria in Bright, and he welcomes the plan. So at the moment, we've got really high populations of deer, like down the eastern side of Australia into the southeast corner, and also around the midlands of Tasmania and parts of South Australia and they've got the ability to keep marching west and north across Australia and the the plan is really about trying to halt that and and hold them so that we can then start concentrating on pushing the population down in those um, those areas. The first two important things about managing invasive species is is number one, preventing them get to areas they aren't at present and then starting to uh, eradicate control them. So this is a really important step. So that eradication and control, that will include culling? Shooting, aerial shooting and ground shooting of deer? Yes, absolutely. And I suppose the main tools available for deer control at the moment are shooting. So when it comes to actually culling deer, and uh, no one likes killing animals, but the fact is that we've just got far too many deer in the country, and uh, so they need to be culled. And that can either be by ground shooting, um, by professional shooters or by um, hunters, but also through aerial control, which a lot of it's been taking place recently, particularly after the bushfires. But the plan also talks about having more tools in the toolbox, and one of them is potentially a bait. Like other pest animals, the, the deer could actually be baited, but this needs to be done safely and humanely, and so there's a fair bit of work to do yet to develop that, but there are some trials going on now, and that could be a real game-changer. However, not everybody is happy with the plan. The Australian Deer Association is an advocacy group representing recreational hunters. There are currently 50,000 licensed recreational deer hunters in Victoria, which remove around 200,000 deer annually. Sean Kilkenny is the lead for advocacy and deer management, and he said they are strongly against baiting. The Australian Deer Association was fairly disappointed in what has been released. There's been a significant lack of consultation and engagement with regards to recreational hunters, and we believe that there's effectively a missed opportunity to remove some misinformation, reduce the alarmism around wild deer in Australia and an opportunity to mature the conversation regarding managing wild deer in Australia. We strongly oppose the use of poisons. They are inhumane and cruel. Um, They can be particularly indiscriminate. Uh, We've seen that across the world where there's a worldwide movement where people are looking to move away from cruel poisons such as 1080. There's an estimated 2 million deer in eastern Australia at the moment. With the numbers that recreational hunters are taking out of that population, is it not enough? Do we need to find some other ways to combat this problem? 
we tend to look at uh, when measuring or talking about deer, we don't have a hard and fast number about how many deer there are in Australia or the eastern seaboard, but what we can do and actively measure is the impacts of deer. So if deer are having a negative impact in a particular environment, then there should be the deployment of particular management tools to reduce that impact and address those concerns. Are there barriers in place that stop recreational hunters from taking out more deer? So yeah, quite often there are national parks, particularly in New South Wales, where you're not allowed to hunt. So anywhere in a national park, there's no recreational hunting, so there's opportunities there. There's also significant significant tracts of public land in Victoria, such as the Snowy River National Park, Irrenunja National Park, just to name a few, that could easily be opened up to recreational hunting. So year on year, there's a continual uptake in the amount of licensed recreational deer hunters in Victoria. Um, we've just ticked over 50,000 just recently, and it's, it's a phenomenal growth curve, and it should be something that should, government should take advantage of. Farmers in the northeast of Victoria have been dealing with deer and the damage they do for decades, and they've stopped waiting for government plans. Don Nightingale is an apple and chestnut orchardist in Wandilagong who has to spend thousands of dollars on fencing. Yes, well, we've got feral deer in increasing numbers, uh, so much so that today when we plant young trees, we need to fence those blocks to keep the deer out. Uh, a very expensive exercise. I think it's around $4,000 for 100-odd metres. By the time you put uh, ring lock, or, well, deer lock, deer fence, poles install it's very expensive yes well in my opinion it's the only way um, you know there's a percentage of shooting goes on but you know it's uh, they're not very effective how have you noticed the numbers of deer change over the years in the northeast oh well <laughs> when we were kids like when we first come into the orchard game like our father started the orchards uh, when we you, you never saw a deer and then over the last perhaps 20 years, they've just started to appear and now they're in large numbers. I mean, you, most nights, if you're out driving, coming home on a Saturday night or any any night, it's not uncommon to see a deer. It's not uncommon to see dead ones on the side of the road. I guess when it comes to pest animals, Don, you know, we hear about all these plans from federal governments, from state governments, from local councils as well to try and combat the problem. Have we figured out how to combat the problem, though? Well, it just keeps getting worse. I mean, I you know, uh, <laughs> I never have much confidence in anything the governments get involved in. But the deer, you know, they're breeding through the hills. They're, they're, a lot of the country the deer are in is inaccessible, and overnight they just drift into the valleys, especially in the winter months when it's cold. A lot of the places where they are, it's built up. You can't shoot anyway. You can't poison them. So there's a lot of restrictions. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what our uh, government's come up with. That's Don Nightingale, a fruit grower from Wandilagong in the northeast of Victoria there. No chance. That's how Australia's peak mushroom industry body has described the likelihood of poisonous wild mushrooms getting into commercially produced fungi products. Georgia Beattie owns Buller Park, the biggest organic mushroom supplier in the country. She's also a board member of the Australian Mushroom Growers Association. And the mushroom industry is defending itself after the woman who prepared a lunch containing suspected deadly mushrooms in Victoria last month told police she bought the mushrooms from a major supermarket and an Asian grocery store in Melbourne. Miss Beattie told reporter Fiona Broom, Australian mushroom producers follow strict safety measures and it would be absolutely impossible for toxic mushrooms to enter supply chains. 
In order to grow mushrooms in Australia, we've got a regulated and, and certified type of what we call spawn, which is essentially mushroom seeds. And so this is a, a commercial strain that's high nutrient and grows consistently. And so every mushroom farm in the, in the country that, that's certified to supply the supermarkets has a regulated type of mushroom seed that's used. And this is a very standard practice in, in agriculture. As a farmer, I want to know exactly the, the crop and, and how to treat it, as in how much water and what sort of temperature it likes so that I can consistently produce uh, mushrooms. You can't deviate away from these commercial strains. And so that's a, a confidence that the, the consumer can have when looking at mushrooms on the shelf. I'm Australia's largest organic mushroom farm. We produce about 15 tonne of mushrooms per week that we supply to the major supermarkets and to the smaller health food stores around Australia. We grow agaricus mushrooms, so they're your button mushrooms. Agaricus is, um, is the sort of Latin of the longer name for the, the button mushroom. They grow a millimetre an hour, so what starts out is a small little button mushroom. If you leave them on the, uh, on the mushroom beds for up to a, a day, they'll continue to grow a millimetre an hour and they'll turn into your sort of larger flat mushroom. So it's just a matter of timing and, and when they're picked that determines their size. And so what's the feeling been amongst growers and producers over the past week or so? I guess it's a concern at the back of all of our minds when the foraging season comes up because it's um, just an, un, an unknown. We've got multiple certifications that are auditors regularly in order to supply the supermarkets in Australia. And that's something that's, that's really the bigger part of our business is, is the, the checks and balances, the certifications and the audits. And what kind of conversations are going on within the industry at the moment in terms of how to respond to any potential fears? If you want to know what's safe, look at the label and make sure that it's grown in Australia and buy from a, a supermarket. These are our Australian food safety regulations that we've had in place for a long time that regulates our industry. So if you want to know that it's safe in Australia, look for the Australian Grown logo. Uh, we, ha- we haven't seen a, a reduction in, in sales. This is an unfortunate event, but our, our rigorous certifications that our, uh, that our farms follow stay, stay in place. We make sure that every step along our um, growing process meets a certain certification and health and safety standards. And my farm's organic, so it goes that next step. And just in general, what is the state of uh, the mushroom industry in Australia? Is it growing year on year? Are, are Australians eating more mushrooms? Yeah, they certainly are. And so you're seeing trends from what I call your reducitarian, so those that are looking to reduce meat for, for the environment or for their own health. And for people looking to add, um, say, vitamin D into their diets, they, they see mushrooms as one of those. So we're seeing the health-conscious consumer um, increasing our, our market share. There's a growing trend towards veganism as well. So all of these market factors um, that younger generations are, are more conscious of, even their, their carbon footprint, are, are definitely um, contributing to our growth. That's Australian Mushroom Growers Association board member Georgia Beattie speaking with Fiona Broom. Let's head down to Tasmania now because in a tiny Tasmanian town, igloos capable of withstanding extreme temperatures are manufactured and sent all over the world like IKEA flat packs. The small fiberglassing company in charge has handled many secret military and scientific projects, but its latest igloo has a slightly different destiny. 
Penguin Composites CEO Nathan Hall spoke to Meg Powell and tried not to give too much away. For those that don't know, Composites um, is basically all types of fibreglass materials. So we have um, two locations nearly side by side. Um, We've got approximately seven different sheds uh, that have all got different capabilities. So we make igloos for companies that are doing research in Antarctica. Um, we just supplied a company, New York University. So they ship their igloo directly to Greenland. Um, we're working on a, an arrangement at the moment with a couple of companies where they've got the borders on the Pyrenees. So anything where you're looking at extreme temperatures, we make a fiberglass-based igloo with varying thicknesses depending on the temperatures that we need to protect people from. Uh, and we can do a number of igloos that are connected to each other by an expansion joint, so to speak. So if you don't want to stay with your friend, your friend can stay down in the next igloo. <laughs> um, but they also can come with cabinetry, they can come with a kitchen, they can come with all sorts of panelling and storage that people need when they're doing six months in Antarctica, so to speak. Can you describe for our radio audience what these look like? They're not they're not like cartoon igloos made of ice, little with a man with a fishing pole outside. What what do they look like? Um, they literally look like a dome um, that is put together. Um, I, I liken it to probably an old fashioned. I think it's a fruit cake where you actually cut, <laughs> where you actually cut them into wedges. Um, so that rounded edge. So if you put them all together, it looks like a perfect dome. Um, but they actually get delivered somewhat flat packed inside each other Um, so when it's delivered on site they can pull out the instructions and put it together like an ikea package the world's most expensive piece of ikea furniture i would imagine so and it doesn't come with an allen key how much how much do these things cost um, depending on the complexity, for the base model is about $35,000. Uh, we were looking at one today that's uh, in being, being made at the moment. This one's for a special purpose. It's not going to Antarctica. Can you tell me about that? I can tell you a little bit, but that's about all I can do. So uh, we're actually making this for a company that um, produces movie pictures, if that's what you call them these days, <laughs> um, films. Um, so, yeah, they've they made a request that uh, for an igloo and we are not allowed to know what the movie is. Um, so And I can't share who the company is. But, yes, we are making an igloo for someone that makes films. Right. So one day you'll be sitting in a cinema and there will be your igloo and you'll go, that's, that's where it is. Yeah, that'll give you a call. <laughs> Thank you, please. Nathan, you're pretty new here, but you've, you've been here for a little while now and you, you know the team. What kind of people do you employ here? Are they skilled? This is probably one of our biggest challenges, Meg, and we often find um, people that are unskilled coming into our factory. Um, and one of the gentlemen we just spoke to even has come through the whole process of making different parts, but now he's also making moulds as well. So something that, uh, you know, eight or nine years ago, he came off the farm and wanted something else to do and literally knocked on the door and we gave him a job. And so I think where I'm spending most of my energy with our team at Penguin Composites is training, supervision, and trying to develop the local community and people to actually, you know, have a great job with a great future. Fiberglass is everywhere because it, it's it's lightweight, uh, it doesn't corrode, it's impervious to moisture. So there's so many things that we can you know do from a fiberglass point of view that supports the local community. That's Penguin Composite CEO Nathan Hall speaking to Meg Powell there.
Let's head up to the top end now because if you're a mango fan, we have good news for you. The harvest is getting underway in the Northern Territory with ripe Kensington Pride mangoes now being picked and packed. Matt Polisi from Red Rich Fruits spoke to Matt Brand about how the season is shaping up in the north. Yeah, so we've started our select pick on, on, on a few of the orchards, so ourselves and the growers. So it'll only be those little, you know, coloured, beautiful, ripened pieces of fruit ready to go, but that officially marks the, the start of the season. You know, it's going to be a very, you know, hard year out of Darwin. The weather, as we all know, through the winter periods was fairly warm and wet, which is not normal. You know, it's always warm, but the little inconsistent rain. So it was very hard to get the trees to flower this year. So we're probably looking at a 40% reduction in crop, but that still means there's plenty of good quality Kensington Pride mangoes ready to go. Wow. Are you hearing that elsewhere, that 40% number? Uh, correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, look, it was it was a problematic year, like obviously after the big wet and then the warm winter and then, and then this, you know, the unseasonally cold the last few weeks, which has sort of slowed the ripening down. So... Darwin doesn't know what to do with itself anymore. It used to just be hot or wet, <laughs> right? <laughs> On pickers, Matt, what's it been like finding people to get the job done? Oh, look, it's the last four years, five years has been a challenge, but we've, we're using the palm scheme mainly now for pickers, So, and I, most farms are, so provided you can accommodate them, we're using all the international workforce now, mm-hmm. and that's been you know more secure than the local backpacker market. But look, the good news is we are seeing more travellers and backpackers back in the region, so that is positive as well. So that I think the pressure's starting to ease a little. When are you expecting the NT's mango harvest to peak this year? Uh, I would have said the start of October, the start to the middle of October. So the season is officially three three weeks later than last year in terms of the peak of volume. So, yeah, probably the first week of October. And as for these early KPs, can you give us a sense on, on where they're heading to and what sort of prices they're fetching in August? Uh, uh, look, it's, uh, I, I don't like to say this with interest rates and the cost of living, but you're probably going to see them between $70 and $90 for the first ones in the mar- in the wholesale markets on the eastern seaboard. Uh, which which uh, is fairly normal, isn't it, for those first ones of the year? They're, they're correct, a bit special. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so look, t- until the end of August, it'll be very sort of minimal amounts. And then every week in September, the volumes will increase. So you'll see the prices ease from... First week of September to the end of September and then the best value in October. And so in general, how are you feeling about the season? Our crops are looking very good. The quality is excellent on the tree, so I think the eating quality is going to be very good. So, it, look, it will be a challenging season because of the way that the harvest will, will happen, but we're, we're, op- we're pessimistically optimistic. That's Matt Polisi from Red Rich Fruits speaking to Matt Brand. And from the top end, let's go right back down to the bottom end because it's Whiskey Week in Tasmania. And a lot of people interstate have been down to visit to try a wee dram with many of the local distilleries producing some signature drops, especially for the week. East Coast distillers Michael and Danielle Briggs from Iron House Point Distillery went to extremes to produce their tipple. So started with beer, we needed some instant cash flow <laughs> uh, whilst the vineyard was growing and uh, yeah, and then moved on to a distillery as well. 
So has the distillery been the last instalment at, at Iron House? It's not quite the last instalment, but it's the most most recent. Um, there, there'll be more uh, more chapters to come as far as our story is concerned. But yeah, that's all for us to work out along the way. So yeah. So you guys are from here. What were you doing beforehand? Uh, well, I'm an occupational therapist, <laughs> so I still do that full time on the side, um, so that Briggsy can pursue his passion. Okay, well, you've got a very good um, partner in life there. <laughs> 100%. I can't do it without her, so, yeah, without her there is, there is no Iron House, so, yeah. Tell us where it is. Is it, is it actually Iron House Point? Yeah, correct, that's it. So we're up at Iron House Point. We're just half an hour north of Bichonneau, so we're sort of at the end of the um, Chain of Lagoons, uh, I guess, property as far as uh, that's concerned. So, yeah, um, Iron House Point uh, used to be an old drover's hut there, and that's where we're located and... Um, where we where we make all the good stuff. So we talk about passion. What's your background? Did you come into this industry with uh, an alcohol alcohol background? Other than consumption, no. Um, I'm an actual landscape gardener by trade. So um, every every distiller's got a, a, a sort of a, a completely obscure uh, line working, of work work where they've come from, and um, it's it's not by it's not by chance. It's just through design that we end up becoming distillers, and and uh, you know that was that's what I was doing beforehand, and here I am today. So. Well, tell me about what you've done for Whiskey Week, because most people seem to have done something a little bit special. Every year we try to uh, we try to bring something else and get a little bit more creative of what we do and how we uh, mature our whiskey. And so this year um, specifically, we've taken some aged whiskey out of our distillery at Iron House Point that had been there for four years, and then put it on an abalone fishing boat for twelve months. <laughs> What drew me to that was the fact that uh, the whole interaction with wood and the maturation process is just astounding and it's so mysterious that we don't really actually know. We, we sort of know what's going on inside that barrel, but we're not in control of that. So it was sort of good to sort of uh, put it on a ship, uh, send it to sea for 12, 12 to 18 months and um, let nature do its thing with it. So, yeah, that's been a really interesting uh, sort of uh, experiment that we've done with it and it's produced some really really good results. There will be uh, more chapters behind that I'm sure because um, the boat's name was actually called Maverick so <laughs> it uh, it really got the, uh, the the imagination going as far as uh, our, our design around our label with Maverick. Mm-hmm. So Danielle now you're chief taster mm-hmm. I believe. I am. Have you tasted this whiskey yet? I have I had the pleasure of tasting it for the first time last night so it's quite a, um, a full-bodied whiskey it's quite heavy so it was what do you amazing. think about it sloshing around in the barrel well, on an abalone fishing yeah. vessel for so 12 months our really good friend Renison Bell is the captain of the boat and he would send us a little bit of footage of what was happening at sea and we did ask him numerous times to check the plugs on the casks and make sure that that was all still secure because there were some big seas that he was rolling around in and you can imagine that that whiskey's just been sloshing backwards and forth and capturing all that beautiful beautiful flavor out of those casks well i can't imagine what that does i mean maybe aeration sloshing around banging up against Look, the wood of the barrel it's it's that that contact with wood is what we're chasing and certainly the uh the salt air um you can't you can't get it any uh rawer than that than actually floating around on the sea so to actually have that um influences coming into the into the spirit has been um yeah, I guess a testament to the experiment that we, we put our hand to, so yeah. What do you think has come out in terms of taste? Certainly, um, probably flavours inside from the wood that I probably wouldn't have got in a 12-month maturation process, like a, an, an extra 12 months. I think it would have taken longer 
um, under the conditions that it was sitting in it up at Ironhouse Point in our bond store. So to actually basically extract a lot deeper into the wood through that slosh mythology um, <laughs> has, has been uh, yeah has been a testament to yeah to that theory. So this is what all the whiskey was like on those old tall ships when they brought whiskey mm. out from the UK, etc. Yeah, exactly. It's certainly replicating um, how it was, and to be able to do that uh, in 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 the current climate that we're in is, was yeah it was an absolute privilege and a, and, a, and a great opportunity to be able to do it. So to take uh, to take back what the pirates and the uh, the first uh, the you know the first sailors used to do, it's um, yeah it's quite it's quite intriguing. Now, how's the the whisky industry and uh, demand going for you? We've seen an absolute spike in in, in the interest of Tasmanian whisky, and that's certainly been pioneered by the by the early uh, um, distillers and the original distillers of the state. So to actually to actually be a part of that and to see the growth within the industry, that's that growth is certainly carrying through to every single business because everyone has their own character to their whisky, and everyone's looking for that next you know that next character or that next personality in the whisky. So yeah. Fiona Breen chatting to Michael and Danielle Briggs from Iron House Point Distillery on Tasmania's east coast there. And that's all from me this week. Thank you for listening. You can listen back to Countrywide or your local country hour via the ABC Listen app. And you can always read more rural news online. Head to abc.net.au forward slash news forward slash rural. Take care. <laughs>